Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their book at a Warren Public Library. Today's book, The Underground Railroad, A Movement That Changed America, by Evelyn Milstein. Ms. Milstein illustrates how the brave actions of those coordinating the railroad helped abolish slavery in the United States. More now from Evelyn Milstein. This is sort of like my formal little talk. Uh, let me introduce myself. I'm a retired librarian, and I have had a passion for African-American history since I was 15 years old. Much as I love black history, I certainly never expected to write a book uh, because I wasn't a writer. I'm just a librarian. Uh, but uh, let me tell you why I com was compelled to write my first book at aged 85. I was a medical library most of my professional life. Uh, and when I retired, uh, I said, I'm going to have fun now. And I uh, decided, because what I had always wanted to be is a reference librarian, an adult reference librarian. I had gone, um, and I went to uh, East Point Library, which is not too far away. And I got myself uh, a part-time job sitting at the reference desk. And I just loved it. I loved, give, and especially I'm a total history nut. Uh, so uh, when kids would come by and parents and teachers uh, wanted help on history, everybody got funneled to me anyway. When uh, Black History Month rolled around, I was the most popular librarian in the library because Everybody wanted to come to me. Everybody wanted to learn or to get help in, in doing something for black history. Not only were the kids coming by, uh, but uh, their parents were coming by. And after a while, even the teachers uh, at uh, East Detroit High School were coming by uh, to get some information on how do you teach black history. And the next thing I know, I'm going into classrooms and making little presentations on black history. My most favorite part of black history turned out to be the Underground Railroad. Just, there was something about this movement that just I just absolutely loved. And I read every book I could find on the subject. Gradually, I began to realize that something was really missing. Uh, by the way, everybody was writing about the Underground Railroad. Uh, I really believed, and believe even more passionately now, uh, that this movement played an incredibly important role in American history, and nobody seems to appreciate that. Uh, so uh, I thought, I got to get somebody to write a new book on this subject. And uh, I have writer friends you know, who are really, really good writers. I write on different subjects. And I said to them, please, write this book for me, since I certainly wasn't a writer. Um, I will do all the research for you. I'm great. I'm a librarian. I'm great at research. But I can't write. And they all laughed at me. And they said, wait a minute. This is your book. You've got to write it. You're the one who cares about it. You've got to write it. And I, let me tell you, I whined 
I said, I'm not a writer. You know I'm not a writer. You can't do this to me. Uh, and their answer was sweetly, well, you better learn to be a writer because you're the only one who's going to write this book. And I sort of moaned and groaned for a while, and then I realized it's true. If anyone's going to tell the story, then I have to learn to be a writer. And so, uh, well, it's 16 years ago now, I said, I'm going to teach myself to be a writer. And that's exactly what I had to do. I mean, uh, luckily, these same friends who had driven me crazy because they wouldn't write my book said, they'll help me. And they took uh, what was pretty sad looking material and showed me how to become a writer. Now, you can't teach anyone to be Shakespeare, but you can teach somebody to tell a decent story. And that's what happened. Uh, and that's how I ended up writing my first book at age 85. Uh, now, everybody asks me a question. There are lots of books on the Underground Railroad. Lots and lots of children's books and some adult books. Um, and they want to know, why is your book different than other people's? Well, why did you actually feel compelled to write this book? Uh, this is what I believe. I believe, as different than most historians, that the Underground Railroad, both north and south, was a well-organized resistance movement, rather than what you usually hear, which is that it's sort of a loose assortment of well-meaning men and women who reach out and you know, very nobly do all these things. And that's sort of the story that you get about the Underground Railroad. Uh, and I beg to differ from them. Uh, I believe that this is one of the most significant movements in American history for two reasons. One, it was the first biracial movement in American history. I think it's still the only one uh, that was biracial, but it was led by African Americans. They were the leaders of this movement. And they managed to bring together a fairly impressive biracial movement. The second, and even more significant, was the fact uh, that this was the most and the greatest civil disobedience movement in American history. There's never been anything that even came close to the kinds of civil disobedience that was generated by the Underground Railroad. Uh, so that's my introduction. Uh, now, uh, and of course, if you didn't get this, there's, these are the Underground Railroad obviously began in the South. If, if a slave didn't decide to run away, there would ever be an Underground Railroad. Ah, and you have to picture what a slave or groups of slaves faced when they decided to escape to free. And I'm only talking in this book about the North. Um, uh, there was another thing that 
uh, that you could talk about where they escaped to Bahamas or South America or something like that. Uh, but when you start in the South and you want to escape, uh, you are faced with dealing with a, with a, uh, <coughs> a police state in a way that Americans have not seen. You had all kinds of law enforcement. Everybody was running around with a gun in the South. Uh, you had law enforcement. Uh, you had all kinds of volunteer posses. Uh, the South was patrolled every single night by some kind of armed guards. Uh, and uh, if you, and I'm, now I'm just talking about like one person. Uh, if you decided to escape and you were caught and you were not allowed to travel outside of the plantation without a pass, so if they stopped you, you didn't have a pass, then uh, you were faced with extreme brutal punishment, always beatings, brandings, physical mutilation, cut off your ear, cut off your fingers, uh, and it was not uncommon for chronic runaways to be murdered. You ran away enough, they would just beat you to death in front of the rest of the uh, plantation population. Yet, confronted with all of that, 150,000 slaves succeeded in escaping to either the North or Canada. Now, many of these people escaped all on their own, but the story that I'm telling is the fact that you would not have this kind of escape without the help of the organized Underground Railroad. The strength of the South's railroad was based on the role played by black seamen. Let me explain. Before America had a railroad, I mean, the Underground Railroad was named for something that didn't exist until almost the 1840s. Uh, but the transportation system that the entire South depended on was the, uh, the river system. Uh, in order to get your products to market, your cotton, your tobacco, corn, whatever, you had to use one of the rivers. And the South is honeycombed with rivers. Uh, they, they start out in the mountains, and they go all the way to all of the port cities uh, in the South. In the South have a lot of port cities. Uh, most southern plantations were built on the banks or close to one of these rivers so that they could get their products to market. Hundreds of small vessels went up and down this whole vast river system, taking things to the local town or taking things all the way uh, from the interior of the south all the way to a port city. Just all this, that's how the entire economy of the south was based on this river transportation. Uh, since most of these boats were small, they were uh, not seagoing vessels because you couldn't use anything that big on riverway systems. Uh, 
they were small and they held a pilot or maybe a pilot, a river pilot and an assistant. These pilots were always black. There were, as far as I know, as contrary to the Mississippi, there were no white pilots. 90% of these pilots were slaves. However, they traveled for days and even weeks without supervision because you couldn't supervise if you wanted to fill your boat with cotton, for example. And that's how they were designed and the entire economy of the South was based on having these river pilots. Uh, many, many of these uh, river pilots were also members of the South's Underground Railroad. And the only reason that we know is because when the Civil War came, these pilots suddenly showed up in the Union Army. Uh, they became the Raiders. They, became, they did all these things. They had been doing this. They had been running the South for years. And as soon as the Union Army came down, they volunteered their services. Uh, and that's how we know that they'd been doing it before, if we didn't know that, if, if we didn't have this kind of evidence, uh, maybe we would never know. Uh, now, fugit uh, so these, not every pilot, of course, but a minority, an important minority, were doing this. And the way, what they did was they transported uh, uh, fugitives by hiding them under the produce. You know, you'd have a cotton, and under the cotton would be a fugitive slave or two. Uh, and they would exchange them, move them, get them to a port city. A port city was absolutely necessary if they were going to get north. Many times, uh, uh, they would be hidden in a port city. Uh, for days, weeks, until uh, members of the Underground Railroad who lived in cities would be able to find uh, a hidden uh, spot for them on a northern ship that was taking produce from uh, Richmond all the way up to the north someplace. Uh, and there was a whole system. There were uh, people that knew the sailors. That there was a whole intricate relationship uh, between uh, African-Americans who lived in the cities, port cities, uh, and sailors, uh, and even sea captains. Now, this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, sea captains, and, and, and in this little thing that I pass out, you'll read more about sea captains. Uh, they're very in interesting stories about northern sea captains. Uh, now, when you, ha you were on your little boat and then you hit the wharf, you had to get off. Uh, you had to get off. Uh, and find a hiding place, a safe house in the port city until a spot could be found for you. Uh, and uh, 
they did this by mingling with the workers on the dock would be able to sneak a, uh, a fugitive or two uh, by pretending that they were carrying something for them and doing something. Uh, when I say, and I said in the beginning, these were brilliant people. This is not easy to figure out when all around you uh, were the forces uh, trying to stop you in a police state. And you managed to do this by acting, by whatever you needed to do, you did. And many of these um, underground railroad workers never got caught. A lot of them did. You know, it's always dangerous. But many of them never got caught. Uh, so they got them off the wharf and into safe house, and they waited until uh, they got a berth on a ship. So they got the berth on the ship, and then they needed to get them from the docks onto the ship. And that was even more difficult. Everybody, slave hunters, officers of the law, sheriff's department, they, uh, they knew that that was going to happen. And so uh, they were all focused on the same wharfs as the Underground Railroad workers were focused on getting them aboard a ship. Uh, now, the reason that they could succeed was because all of the work that was done on dockside to service seagoing ships was done by African Americans. Most of them slaves and some of them free. And they established a method of, uh, for example, you had uh, maids who were cleaning all the cabins of these ships. Um, you have laundresses who were bringing laundry. They got to go to every cabin and deposit laundry. Uh, you had teamsters bringing produce, uh, mechanics fixing. They developed a brilliant system of hiding fugitives in this method. Uh, and then, my favorite story, are the sea captains. You have northern sea captains, uh, abolitionist sea captains, who regularly hid not just one or two, but a number of fugitives. Uh, I'm going to tell you the story of Captain Flowers, because he's one of my favorite heroes. Uh, he, Captain Flowers, uh, was a delivered cargo, picked up and delivered cargo almost every uh, port in the Upper South. Uh, William Stills, the black head of Philadelphia's Underground Railroad, uh, wrote about one encounter that has everybody chuckling. Uh, this was an encounter that Captain Fountain had with the mayor of North Fork, Virginia. The mayor had been told that Fountain was hiding a group of fugitives aboard his ship. So he led a posse up to gag plant, demanded the right to start searching for secret hiding places. A smiling Fountain graciously agreed uh, and even offered to help. Seizing an ax, he asked the mayor, is this where he should begin? pointing to a spot on his desk. 
The confused mayor nodded and Fountain began swinging his ax, not only against his deck, but in riding erratic circles in the air. The nervous mayor watched this wild and possibly crazy man swinging this ax and decided it was time to leave. 21 fugitives hiding below deck breathed a sigh of relief. And a few days later, Captain Fountain sa sailed into Philadelphia and delivered his load of fugitives to William Still. Now, this is something most people don't know. South Florida is never considered part of the Underground Railroad history, yet it was one of the most important escape routes used by slaves living in the Carolinas and Georgia. The reason it's so important, it was the home of the Seminole Nation. And once a fugitive reached the sanctuary, he was free. Fugitives lived in their own separate villages, electing their own chiefs, who participated as equals within the Seminole Council. In 1830, President Andrew Johnson, Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which forced all of the Indian tribes living in the South to leave their ancient homelands for new lands in what is now Oklahoma. Every tribe, after bitterly protesting, was forced to comply. Every tribe, that is, except the Seminole Nation. Why did the Seminoles decide they must resist? President Jackson's removal order included a condition that horrified the Seminoles. While Indian Seminoles would be herded on the ships for the trip west, black Seminoles would be carried off to slave auctions. What no one in the federal government uh, understood was that black Seminoles were intimate members of the Seminole Nation. Intermarriage between Seminole and Indian, between black and Indian Seminoles was common. One important Seminole chief had black grandchildren. In the beginning, the Seminole Council meetings were filled with conflict and indecision. On one hand, they could not bear the thought of abandoning their black uh, brethren. On the other hand, back in the 1800s, when they had fought the American army to save their lands in North Florida, they had lost every battle. How could they finally, uh, how could they possibly defeat this same army now? Abraham, who was chief of the black Seminoles, told the council that he had a plan. Since Abraham was also Principal Chief Macanope's interpreter, which in the Seminole world was like being the prime minister, uh, like England, uh, they wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, and he presented a plan uh, to the Seminoles, he said, which guerrilla warfare, uh, back before anyone knew about, and it worked. Uh, he would attack an army and they would retreat and they could never find him because he was, uh, because South Florida at that point was full of swampland. Uh, they ended up in a war with the Seminoles, uh, uh, and they couldn't win it. And so in the end, um, and I have to read this, 
uh, the American government signed an agreement with the Seminole Nation that they could uh, immigrate to the West and they would be, this is the quote, secure in their lives and property and that their bona fide property would accompany them to the West. This bona fide property was a code word for black Seminoles who had just been redefined as slaves of the Seminole, but that's how black Seminoles uh, did not end up on the auction block and the Seminole uh, uh, and traveled west. Uh, and that story, which I have in my book, which is like a whole, I'm just giving you a brief description of this, uh, uh, was an, an, an incredible victory. Uh, the Seminoles are the only American Indians who were never defeated by the United States Army. Now, whoops, I'm running out of time. Well, <laughs> uh, the other, uh, when I said that, uh, that the Underground Railroad was one of the greatest civil disobedience movement in American history, uh, when you say civil disobedience, what you mean is that you're willing to break the law, go to jail. It's not like marching or it's not like signing petitions. It's literally choosing uh, to break the law. And uh, that's what the Underground Railroad was because any time uh, that you uh, chose to challenge the fugitive slave law, uh, you were breaking the law, and that is civil disobedience. And that included things you wouldn't believe, uh, like uh, women in the North had a sewing, had all, always had sewing societies. And, Abolitionist women would be sewing clothes for fugitive slaves who used to show up in the North practically in tatters. That's civil disobedience. Uh, because you are aiding and abetting uh, what the South considered stealing their property. And, that, and fugitive slave law has been in the constitutions since the day the Constitution was written. Um, and in 1850, I'm skipping over some of this because I'm talking too long. Uh, in 1850, the, uh, uh, the Congress was in crisis. The Mexican-American War was over and they had all this property and they had to figure out what to do it. And the question was, are they going to let slavery in there or not? Uh, and for about a year, uh, uh, Congress didn't pass a thing. Uh, the final compromise, in history books they call it the Compromise of 1850, uh, what they decided was that the, the North absolutely would not let ca a California come in as a slave state, and everybody wanted California. They had gold. They had just discovered gold. And... Uh, the South knew that they could be rich with gold. I mean, they had slaves who could go in the mines, and the North said it's going to be free. Uh, and the only reason, or one of the only reasons California came in as a free state 
is because in the compromise, uh, uh, Congress passed the worst fugitive slave law, a, a law that was so apparent, abhorrent, uh, and that law was passed, and that turned the Underground Railroad from a, a movement which was civil disobedient from the beginning, uh, but after 1850, it turned into the greatest civil disobedient movement this country's ever seen. Uh, and uh, you saw demonstrations uh, all over the country. Uh, and I want to give you some examples of, and I want you to know that there were demonstrations like all over. I mean, I could sit here and, and spend the half hour just talking about the kinds of resistance. Um, Oh, for example, uh, uh, in 1851 in Boston, uh, a fugitive slave, Shadrach Minkins, was arrested uh, and um, going to be sent back under the new fugitive slave law. Um, the, uh, and un under the new law, you, couldn't have a you, you didn't really have a trial or anything. You just, somebody said, yes, you're a slave, and then you went back. Uh, the leader, uh, the black leader of the Underground Railroad in Boston, his name was Lewis Hayden, organized a mob. They burst into the courtroom where you had a commissioner who spent 15 minutes and said, yep, you're a fugitive slave, you're getting ready to go back. Uh, and uh, they broke, let a mob, broke into the courtroom, rescued Minkins, uh, Send him on the way, and, and, and this was in full view of, of a uh, courtroom scene, you know, with people sitting around and judges and prosecutors. Um, they grabbed Minkins. Uh, he was soon on his way to Canada. Uh, Lewis Hayden uh, was tried for uh, violating the fugitive slave law. They had all these witnesses. There was no question in anybody's mind that he, had, that he had led the mob, and the jury refused to convict him. Just drove the South crazy. Uh, uh, when the government decided uh, that they had approved to the South that the fugitive slave law was going to work, and they had to do it in Boston. And they had some supporters in Boston because you had businessmen who were very much tied to the South. Um, they arrested, six months later, they arrested someone else. Uh, his name was, uh, what was his name? Thomas Sims. Uh, and if you could picture this, Thomas Sims was in the courtroom and this is the way the federal government handled this. The citizens of that morning, the citizens of Boston woke up to the astonishing sight of their courtroom ringed in steel chains while 500 policemen patrolled all the streets. Uh, Sims was declared a fugitive 
But the federal government did not dare to send him down the street. And if anybody's been in Boston, you know that the courthouse and the docks are, it's like a 15 minute walk. Uh, they were so afraid of another rescue that they waited till three o'clock in the morning uh, and uh, sent him down to the wharf and put him aboard ship. Uh, and those uh, Boston businessmen, they, they rejoiced. See, we told you, South, we will enforce the fugitive slave law. You know, you don't have to leave the Union. And uh, it cost $20,000 to send Sims back. Twen now, $20,000 even today is a lot of money. If you start calculating what it meant uh, in 1850, you will realize that this was massive, massive amounts of money. Uh, now, Syracuse, New York, uh, when they heard, when they realized what the fugitive slave law was, the mayor announced immediately that they were organizing a citywide vigilance committee to protect their black citizens. Uh, and uh, on August 1851, a fugitive slave uh, was arrested by U.S. Marshals, um, and the city took immediate action. Uh, they smashed open the courthouse door, rescued McHenry. Uh, the crowds who were cheering the rescue uh, saw McHenry. They sprang into action. I love this little rescue. First, they put McHenry into a waiting carriage drawn by a white horse. And as he was driven away, dozens of other carriages also, this is planned by the Vigilance Committee, uh, with white horses began to drive in every direction. And so the posse that was trying to grab him didn't know who to follow. And to show you how massive the support was, uh, they celebrated what they called the Jerry Rescue every year until the end of the Civil War. That's how proud they were, the entire town. That's what I mean by massive civil disobedience. Um, and the last story I'm going to tell you uh, is that Wisconsin had another uh, uh, case where uh, rescuers uh, saved Joshua Glover and sent him off to Canada. And the rescuers were arrested um, and put on trial by federal court. And uh, the state Supreme Court of Wisconsin, after the rescuers had been declared guilty, the state Supreme Court announced that no, they were innocent because the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 was unconstitutional and they released the rescuers. Now, when in the history of this country have you ever heard of a state Supreme Court declaring uh, that a federal law was unconstitutional? So these are the kinds of stories. Um, and the Underground Railroad, uh, by the time of the Civil War, I mean, I could sit here for an hour and just talk about the Underground Railroad, which was morphed um, into uh, a movement that uh, helped defeat the South. They were spies. Uh, they were raiders. 
Uh, this is all before they even got to join the army. And once they joined the army, they were 40%, I mean, 10% um, of the Union Army. And where Lincoln always said was the reason that, one of the reasons that the North won the Civil War. Uh, but I just want to conclude with the reason that I regard the Underground Railroad so powerful. Uh, when in January 1865, the South was obviously losing, they uh, had so many uh, casualties and desertions, a lot of mass desertions, uh, there was no place they could find fresh troops. A handful of Confederate leaders began thinking the unthinkable. They might have to abolish slavery in order to save the Confederacy. Uh, Jefferson Davis had proposed to enlist 40,000 slaves in the Confederacy, and he knew that if he was going to do that, he would have to offer them freedom for them and their families. And the outcry in the South was just outrageous. They just, uh, what do you mean? We're left, we left the Union to save slavery. And now you're saying, now, when they say uh, end slavery, you have to understand that Jefferson Davis and uh, Robert E. Lee had no intention of actually ending slavery, but they had like a, and when you read their plans and, and you see what they did after the Civil War, you know that this was not a genuine offer, but it was an offer. And um, they actually passed it. They passed it just before the Civil War ended. Uh, and what I, when I look at this, uh, I say uh, that this was a revolution, which you don't get in the textbooks. You don't get this. Uh, the Confederacy was forced to admit to the whole world that their whole justification for slavery was wrong. Their greatest leaders, Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis, were forced to acknowledge that their ex-slaves had turned out to be formidable fighters. Now they were begging their own slaves to save the Confederacy. And this is one of the reasons that I was compelled to write this book. So that's my talk. The Underground Railroad by Evelyn Milstein can be purchased on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. This has been a Straight from the Author podcast, a production of mywarren.org.